talking about the miracles of Jesus. We're looking at uh, John 11, verses 1 through 44, contain the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. What a powerful miracle that is, amen? You know, I love it as we sing our songs about miracles and what we believe God can do and what His Word says He can do. And I like Pastor Mike where it says that part, don't you tell me He can't do it, amen? Amen. So we're studying miracles because we serve a miracle-working God, amen? And we should believe for miracles in our own lives. God still heals the sick. He still fixes broken bodies. He still sets captives free. He still sets the addict free, amen? He breaks the chains of addiction. Don't get quiet on me now. Come on, second service. That's the God we serve, amen? So we're looking at this miracle here of God raising Lazarus from the dead, and it's exciting, and there's a lot of moving parts here. Now, the book of John is the only gospel that chronicles this miracle. We see most of the miracles are covered in two to three of the gospels. Only one is covered in all four. But this very important miracle, and one that many of us know, and uh, you know, it seems to be uh, just a, a miracle that people even outside the church know about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, only in the book of John, and John uh, gives 44 verses of detail about this. There are many components here, many moving parts, and we're going to break it down into, into bite-sized pieces, and we're going to savor it, amen? If you've ever had a good meal on your plate, you know, you don't rush eating a good meal, amen? The older I get, the more I've learned to chew. Come on, anybody ever eat so fast that your dog looks at you and he's like, slow down? You know, when the dog says you're eating too fast, you're eating too fast. Well, you know, we don't do that with the Word of God. Well, it's 44 verses. Let's just do it all. No, listen, we're going to break it down and savor every bite of this because there's no filler in the Word of God. All of it is important. The details, the components of this miracle, all the moving pieces, we're going to take our time and enjoy them. We're going to see Jesus move in the purpose and the timing of heaven according to the Father's will. Now, that's what Jesus did, and that's what we should do, move in the purpose and the timing of heaven. Why? Jesus didn't do what he felt like doing when he felt like doing it. He only did what he saw the Father doing. And this miracle is going to unfold at, at the timing and the will of God. Now, if you've ever noticed, the timing and the will of God always clashes with man's timing and man's will. Many times we're like, God, hurry up. I need this yesterday. And God's got, you got a long time to wait, son. You just better dig in. We're going to build some maturity and faith in you. But God, I need it now. And, and he knows what we need when we need it. So Jesus does what the Father's doing. He moves in the purpose and the timing of heaven. This is going to clash with all those involved here. Uh, you know, Lazarus is going to wind up dead because Jesus takes his time getting there. Mary and Martha are going to wind up distraught because Jesus takes his time getting there. But understand, in all the things about timing and purpose and the will of God, Jesus is right on time. He's never late, and he never fails. Heaven's timing clashes with ours. It produces drama and frustration and sometimes disillusionment. But it, when it's all said and done, we're amazed at how God's perfect will works in God's perfect time. There are powerful lessons for us to learn and hear. Mary and Martha are going to learn some things. The disciples are going to learn some things. The crowd is going to learn some things. And we're going to learn some things as we enjoy this miracle. Let's go to John 11 
And I'm going to read verses 1 through 16 today. We're going to take our first bite. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters went and sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, listen to this, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So then Jesus said to them, Plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. We'll stop there <laughs> on Thomas's stunning remark, which we're going to discuss in a little bit. But here's the the first bite of this miracle here, and, and verses 1 and 2 set up the backstory. And if you notice, with miracles, there's always a backstory. There's either religious people contending the miracle, there's desperate people seeking Jesus, there's people who have faith, there's people who have no faith, there's people who are distractions and disruptive. There's always a backstory. And the backstory here about this miracle is that Lazarus and his family have an intimate relationship with Jesus. Now, could you imagine, you know, somebody mentions, oh, did you hear about Jesus and all the things he does? Oh, yeah, he's a friend of mine. He comes over for dinner. We've eaten together. He's been in our house. All of this was true. These guys have a relationship with Jesus. How many, you know, understand that when we're in trouble, when we're in crisis, if we have a relationship with Jesus, that should bring us comfort, Amen. Look, if you just know about God, if you just have heard about Jesus, if you just, you know, uh, know things about the Bible, but you don't know the Jesus of the Bible in a personal way, then when life comes unglued all around you, that can cause you to fall apart too. But these guys had a personal relationship with Jesus. Lazarus was from Bethany. He was the brother of Martha and Mary. Now, Mary had a life-changing encounter with Jesus that had brokered this whole relationship that he now has with her family. In Luke 7, we hear about this Mary, who is the one who broke the alabaster box of expensive ointment over Jesus and anointed him with it. Now, let's Go to Luke 7. I'll read this to you, starting in verse 37. Here's the account 
of Mary's connection to Jesus. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is that is touching him, for she is a sinner. Hmm. And Jesus answered him. I love it when Jesus answers the questions that people are thinking in their head. I love to see this guy's face. And Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have uh, rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. This is the Mary who is now involved in this situation with Lazarus here. She had an incredible encounter with Jesus, a connection with him that led to an ongoing relationship with him and her family. So, you know, there's the backstory there. There's the connection. Now, in verse 3, Lazarus is sick. And it's not the type of sickness where, you know, it's the sniffles, you, you get a little bit of rest, you eat that, you know, that homemade chicken soup that they, it's like Jewish penicillin, it just heals you. You know, it's not the type of sickness where, you know, you rub some Vicks on it. You take a little NyQuil and you wake up and you're good. This is serious sickness. This is a sickness that looks like it's leading unto death. And so it's a serious situation. And his sisters discern that. And they send for Jesus because they know that he's a miracle worker. Amen. They send for Jesus because they know he heals the sick. They send for Jesus because in their time of desperation, they have a relationship with him that they could cry out for him and expect him to respond. What a picture of how we are supposed to be, uh, you know, in our crisis, in our situations, in our sickness, in the, the times where, you know, it's beyond our ability, beyond human ability, that we cry out to Jesus out of relationship. Now, I want to point something out here. Mary and Martha do exactly what they should have done in this situation. You know, many times in circumstances in life, we wind up doing the exact opposite of what we should do. Anybody? Those of you who are trying to look holy, you're not fooling anyone. You know, we should have went left and we went right. We should have said nothing and we said everything. We should have said something and we were dead silent. 
Come on, it's amazing how we have the capacity to do the exact opposite of what we need to do. I'm sick, so I'm going to, you know, do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to take this on medicine. I'm going to drink, you know, but we don't ask God to heal us. I'm in trouble, so I'm going to get a lawyer, and I'm going to build a good case, and, a, and we don't cry out to Jesus. These guys did the right thing. And that should be an example to us, to in our crisis, cry out for Jesus. Now, we're going to find out that as in their situation, as with a lot of times in life, even though you do the right thing, the thing doesn't seem to go your way. I'm not preaching to anybody alive out there. Yeah. Oh, no, Pastor, I get what I want all the time. I'm batting a 1,000 on my prayers. Jesus, and he answers them right away for me. You must have sin in your life, so I don't know what to do with you. No, all of us have prayed and got the exact opposite of what we prayed for. All of us have, you know, said, God, I need this, and it doesn't come, it doesn't happen. And so, you know, here they are doing the right thing, but the way this is going to unfold, it's going to be really, you know, kind of an emotional roller coaster for them. Lazarus is sick, it's serious, they've cried out, they put the ball in Jesus' court, they did exactly what they needed to do, yet, you know, they reach out to Jesus not from a place of demanding anything or, or because we have a relationship, but it's faith. They're not asking Jesus to come because, you know, he's good to have around, you know, when there's tension, he just makes everybody calm. No, they're calling him because he heals sick people. So it's faith that's activated here, and, and it's the right situation. Now, apparently, Jesus also had a very close relationship with Lazarus. His sisters allude to that when they say, he whom you love is sick. Isn't that cool to be able to, you know, uh, think of yourself as someone that Jesus loves? John, in John's gospel, wrote about himself and said, the one whom Jesus loves. What a great thing to have a relationship, a connection, and intimacy with Jesus. Surely Lazarus, Martha, and Mary would think we can depend on Jesus to come and take care of this because of our relationship with him. And so they reach out in faith, and they do exactly what they're supposed to do. Now, in verse 4, we're going to see Jesus is not blindsided by any of this. Everyone else around him, Mary, Martha, they're confused. The disciples, we're going to see, are out in left field as usual. Uh, but Jesus is not taken aback by any of this. It says, but when he heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. He knew exactly how it was going to unfold, and he knew exactly what the results were going to be. And you might say, well, you know, that's because Jesus was omniscient. He knows all things. So hooray for Jesus. He knows everything. You don't know where I'm going with this. We don't know everything. Amen. So listen to me, while Jesus is calm and cool and understands and he, he basically lays out how it's going to go, everybody else has no clue how it's going to go. And you and I, in a lot of instances in life, have no clue how it's going to go. Come on, that's what life is about. It's a surprise every day, right? You get up, how's it going to go today? You know, you, you go, you're going to work. What kind of mood is the boss going to be in today? And we don't know how it's going to go. We trust in the goodness of God. We trust in the grace of God. But, you know, hard things come our way in life. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen, yet everyone around him doesn't. You know what? If we were wise, we would just trust in his demeanor on how we react to a situation. 
When we go through something, well, what's the Lord saying? What, what's the presence of God saying? What, what's your gut saying? What's the Holy Ghost saying, amen? There's been times where I'm freaking out and the Holy Spirit's going, there's no problem here. There's times when everything is wrong and, and, and you should be scared. I'm not scared at all. Just a few weeks ago, I was laying on the pavement after doing a 50-mile-an-hour belly flop. And you know what? At no point was I scared. At no point was I confused. I felt the presence of God. I knew exactly what was going on, and I knew that the Lord had me. Everybody else around me was looking at me like, I'm looking at them. They looked horrified. I'm like, you say, what is that? It's, it's reading the situation spiritually by the presence of God and reacting accordingly. This is wisdom if we'll get this this morning. You know how foolish it is for us to freak out when heaven is calm and collected. I got this. Jesus is like, man, this is going to fold out. Oh, he's almost saying this is going to be awesome. The Father's going to be glorified. I'm going to be glorified. People are going to believe. People are going to get saved. Hello. And the disciples, we're going to see they're just not getting it. Mary and Martha, man, Mary, who washed Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears, she's going to get herself one of them things called an attitude. Come on, ladies, ever had an attitude? She's going to come. When Jesus gets there, she's not going to go out to him. Then when she does go out, she's going to stomp out there. Look, guys, if you got a lady stomping your way, start praying. But Mary, she's going to get an attitude. With Jesus. So Jesus knows what's going on, but everybody else is a little behind the curve. Lazarus is sick. It's serious. They've cried out. They've done it in faith. They put the ball in Jesus' court. Now, the response that Jesus gives to Mary and Martha's request is to delay his coming. In verse 5 and 7, you know, we see that. It said, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he dropped everything and went there immediately. Who's following along? That's not what it says. <laughs> Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he says to his disciples, let's go up to Judea again. So there again, Jesus' reaction is the direct opposite of what they would have expected. His response is, yeah, it's a critical situation, you know, and he loves these people. He has relationship with them. They were close friends, but he delays his coming by two days. You say, why did Jesus delay his coming by two days? Because two days was enough to allow the Father's will to run its course. Hear this this morning. God allows things to stay present in our life. He allows us to go through things. He allows us to be in positions. Why? It's uncomfortable, Lord. Make it stop. It'll stop when the Father's will has run its course. The Father's will needed to run its course in Lazarus's life. What? What was its course? That he would die. Well, we don't like that course. Too bad. The one who knows the beginning from the end has a plan. And we need to have faith and to trust him. But no, he delays his coming. Now, if you've ever been in a situation where you're in crisis and the person who could help you refuses to help you and doesn't show up to help you, you know that can stir up some interesting emotions in your heart. 
And you can bet that they stirred up some things in Mary and Martha and the disciples. And we're going to see this. You know, Jesus' delay allows the Father's will to run its course. And just because things don't go our way in crisis or our prayer request doesn't get answered the way we prayed it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us, that God didn't hear us, and that God doesn't care. And I want you to get that this morning. A thunderous applause. You guys stay up late last night? So we feel like that. Well, God, you didn't answer me. I was in, I needed you, Lord. I was drowning. It was all coming apart. You know, and I prayed and I did what I was supposed to and I reached out to you and you didn't answer me. So we conclude what? God doesn't love me. We conclude God doesn't hear me. We conclude God doesn't care about me. If we're just getting real this morning, all of us have felt those emotions at time. Now, I know this is not happy, clappy, hot tub Christianity preaching here. This is real raw stuff, amen? And I want to get at the fact that, you know, our real raw emotions, you know, we feel like this. And some of us, when we feel God doesn't hear our prayers, God doesn't care about us, God, you know, God doesn't love me, we harden our hearts toward the Lord. And that's a really dangerous thing to do. All of us have felt like this at times. God, you don't really love me. If you really loved me, you'd never have let that person abuse me. God, you really don't hear me. I cried out to you. I prayed like I never prayed before. And and still, it went exactly the way I feared it would go. God, you can't possibly care about me by allowing all these situations to remain in my life. Mary and Martha were going to feel all of these things just as we have felt all of these things at times. And if we're going to be honest here, we wrestle with these things, and we may very well be wrestling with all three of them this morning. When you and I feel like God doesn't love us, that God doesn't hear us, that God doesn't care about us, that can greatly affect the trajectory of our lives. It can affect our faith. Either we're going to push God away and get bitter and get estranged from him, or we're going to run to God in faith and trust him and lay ourselves at his mercy. We have one of two choices. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution paper printed a quote from cable TV mogul Ted Turner. Most of us know who Ted Turner is. Turner criticized Christianity. He said Jesus would probably be sick to his stomach over the way his ideas have been twisted. The truth is, Ted had walked away from God a long time ago, and his heart was twisted. But he looked at the church, and he judged it, and he called the church twisted. Turner made these remarks at a Friday evening banquet in Orlando, Florida, where he was being given a prestigious award from the American Humanist Association for work on behalf of the environment and world peace. Turner had been raised in a Christian home, and one time he considered being a missionary. He joked with the crowd, I've been saved like seven or eight times, the newspaper quoted him as saying. Turner became disillusioned and walked away from Christianity after his sister died despite his many prayers. Turner said, the more I strayed away from my faith, the better I felt. Wow. What's that an example of? That's an example of not getting what you want or or feeling like your prayer wasn't answered like you wanted. So instead of trusting in the sovereignty and the goodness of God, you harden your heart, you get angry at God, and you estrange yourself from him. 
Strangely, when the heart is in that condition, the further away we get from God, the better we feel. And what is that doing us? It's preparing, an, it's preparing our hearts for an eternity of separation from God. You need to pray for people like this, that they would see the light and God would soften their hearts and they would come back to the faith. But this man made a choice, and we have to make a choice. And Mary and Martha had to make a choice. How are we going to respond to these situations in life when it's crisis and it doesn't go our way and we feel that God doesn't love us, God didn't hear us, God couldn't possibly care about us? Jesus finally decides the Father's will has run its course, and it's time to go back to Judea. Now, interestingly enough, when Jesus says it's time to go back to Judea, Mary and Martha think that he's a couple days late already. I, I, Lazarus is probably having a good time, but, you know, Mary and Martha are in pain. So, you know, he's got some people tugging him. You should be here, you know, two days ago. And then he says we're going back, and his disciples are going, we're not going back there. Let, let's get to the text here in verse 7 and 8. You know, it says this, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. It's time to go, guys. Then the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? So I want you to see the tug on Jesus. There's a tug from Mary and Martha. There's a tug from the disciples. There's the forces of darkness pushing against him. And what this all amounts to is resistance. Remember I said, the closer we get to a miracle, the more resistance we're going to face. The closer Jesus got to miracles, the more resistance he faced. Now, we expect, if we're mature at all in the Lord, we expect the kingdom of darkness to resist the kingdom of God. Amen? You can expect the devil to try and short-circuit your miracle, talk you out of it, to tell you it can't happen, tell you God doesn't. No, you can expect that. But the resistance here does not come from the devil. It comes from his disciples. What is that? Fratricide, friendly fire, taking uh, hits from the people who should support you. Here's Jesus doing the will of God. He's already told them how this miracle is going to unfold. But no. It's time to go, and they resist him. Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. You are going there again. So basically they're saying, Jesus, are you kidding me? They want to kill you there. We're not going back there. They're, they're going to stone you. Now, Jesus' response to this, going back, you know, uh, it might be a legitimate concern uh, from the disciples' perspective if, you know, it's just in a human perspective. Why? Because, you know, they're afraid that Jesus is going to get stoned. How many know if you're following Jesus and they're trying to kill him, they're trying to kill you too? Anybody? You know, most of us don't know what that's like to be marked. You know, uh, people are trying to kill us. You know, we think sometimes, you know, people are out to get us, but they were literally, you know, they had stones. They knew how to throw them. They had thrown them at them before. They, they wanted to kill them. And so it makes a little bit of sense here that they would say, well, we don't want to go there. But, you know, understand something. Their concerns were based on the fear of man. And the fear of man is no excuse to disobey the will of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit tells us to do something and we hear him clearly and it's confirmed uh, to us that we know it's the Holy Spirit, we should not fear man and bow to our fears over the will of God. Amen. 
Jesus knew he could go. Why? Because no one was going to take his life from him. Can I tell you something today? If you're serving God and walking in his perfect will, no one's going to take your life out of his hand. No one's going to take your life away from you. Oh, but pastor, you know, they want to get me. Oh, there's diseases. You know, 99.7 people survive, but it's going to get me. Foolishness. Fear. Fear over faith. And here's a situation where they're like, we're afraid to go. Are you kidding me? They just tried to stone you there. Can you pick another spot to go? Can't you just phone in a miracle? Can't you just, you know, bless a prayer cloth and we'll send it to them? Nope, it's resistance. Jesus' response to their resistance in verses 9 and 10 is a bit cryptic. You ever notice when people come at Jesus questioning him about his authority, about what he's doing, he never answers them straight. A lot of times he just he gives them a little, it's almost a parable that he gives them. Listen to this response here. We're not going back there, we're scared. Here's Jesus' response. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And then he said, after this, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. So Jesus is a little cryptic with them. What's, what's this all this talk about? 12 hours in the day and walking in the light and stumbling in the dark. Jesus is saying to them in a roundabout way, look, I'm the light of the world and I operate in the light, and wherever I go, there's light, so you don't need to fear the darkness while I'm with you here, amen? So I'm going to go do what the Father's called me to do because I walk in the light. Now, he still continues to be cryptic with them when he pretty much says, you know, Lazarus sleeps that I may go and wake him up. So he tries subtlety with his disciples. Do you ever read some of these stories and you look like, Jesus, just say it. Anybody? Jesus, they're not getting it. They're not picking up what you're laying down. They're not smelling what the rock is cooking. You just got to tell them. They're, they're not getting it. Jesus, our friend Lazarus is asleep. And the people are going, oh, sleep. He's trying to, you say, why does he do that? Listen, God would rather lead us gently with the tug and the nudge and the still small voice. Hello? but he'll lead us with the bit and the bridle if we're too dense to feel the tug and the nudge. You know, sometimes you can lead a horse by, you know, just leaning a certain way in the saddle. Other times you gotta, you gotta hammer on the, the bridle and you gotta put that bit into his mouth. Other times, you know, you, you gotta get their attention with spurs. How do you wanna be led? It's up to you. You can have spurs if you want. You can have the bridle and the bit rammed down, but he would rather lead you with the gentle, still, small voice. So he gives them a chance to respond to the still, small voice. But we're going to see right away here that they're not willing to back down from their resistance. You know, and you say, well, what, what's the issue here? It's another layer of resistance to miracles. What, that man is many times unable to comprehend the true spiritual condition of things. You and I are unable to comprehend the true spiritual condition of many things. 
What's going on in the church? What's going on in the spiritual realm? What's going on on God's time clock in heaven? What's going on with the last of days? What's going on with the tribulation? You know, and many times we're just stumbling through life without a clue of what's going on in the spiritual realm. And you say, why is that? It's because like the disciples, because we are human, we have this incredible capacity to be spiritually dense. And none of you look happy. But I included myself in that because even after all these years of serving God, of being used by God, of being anointed by God, there are some times that I am still so dense, I shock myself. Brother, there's times where I'm like, God's trying to show me, and it takes me way longer to get it than it should. And sometimes it's the same thing. Oh, that again. You say, why is that? Because, you know, in many ways, we're just spiritually imperceptive. We, we don't get it right away. We should never criticize the disciples because, you know, in a lot of ways, we're exactly like them. Oh, Lazarus is sleeping. He's getting his beauty rest. He'll wake up. Let's go eat something. Anybody hungry? That's us. Worried about our bellies, worried about our comfort, worried about our safety and missing the kingdom of God. How many times do we misunderstand God's will for our own lives? How many times do we underestimate our weakness towards a particular sin until we're knee-deep in it again? How many times do we fall for the same old trick of the devil? Oh, that one again? Ah, he got me again. He pushed my pride. I responded in pride. I acted like a fool. He got me. How many times do we let our egos lead us right into compromise and sin. Oh, I can handle it this time. I'm more mature now. How many times do we miss the warnings of the Holy Spirit? Do we miss the warnings of our pastors and shepherds? Do we miss the warnings of our own conscience? The buzzer's going off. The red flags are being waved, and we're stumbling towards the slaughter like sheep. We have this amazing capacity to be spiritually dense. The disciples had it. We had it. Jesus says, Lazarus is sleeping, and they don't get it. They, they think, you know, well, you know, he'll be fine. We, we don't have to go there. You know, uh, they didn't want to go. They were scared. And I want to tell you something about fear. Fear will always dull our spiritual discernment to the point where we can't discern the will of God. If you have fear in your life, don't dare make spiritual decisions. I talked to a Christian one not too long ago, said, well, why did you do this and make the choice to do that? And they said, because I was afraid, and then they gave the reason. And I don't think they heard themselves say, because I was afraid. Because everything they said after that didn't even matter. The point was that you acted out of fear, and you weren't led by the Spirit of God, that you, you, you acted out of fear. And so in my estimation, as I'm listening to them, you made the wrong choice. But you want to use fear to legitimize it. Fear will always cause us to miss the will of God. If we have fear in our life, we need to deal with it first before we make any spiritual moves. To him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the church. Don't allow yourself to be deceived because you've allowed fear to grip your life. Let God deal with the fear. Hear the Holy Spirit before you move. Now, They think Lazarus is just taking a rest. They think he'll wake up when he feels better, 
and they don't need to go there. Again, Jesus tried to lead them with the gentle nudgings. He tried to be subtle. In verse 14, he plainly says, Lazarus is dead. Sometimes you just need it straight, amen? Sometimes straight doesn't even work, but in this case, Jesus couldn't be any plainer. You know, they didn't say, well, let's study what Jesus said. Let's look it up in the Greek. Let's do a word study on it. Let's pray about it. What does he mean by dead? Is that an allegory? Is He's dead. He's not sleeping. He's dead. D-E-A-D, dead. For you hillbillies, D-E-D, dead. He's not alive anymore. He's not breathing. His heart's not beating. He's dead. So Jesus lays aside the subtlety. Now, remember, I said it's, it's our choice how we get led. If we want to be dense, if we want to be stubborn, if we want to be driven by fear, he'll, he'll have to be blunt with us. In verse 15, he even gets a little more blunt with them. He says, you know, basically that he's dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that he is. What? Jesus, did you not get enough sleep? Do you need a Snickers? Is your blood sugar low? What's the, you're glad that he's dead? This is your friend. My friend's dead, and I'm glad. Man, I can't get, some of you, I cannot get this smile. You're dead. You know, there again, I would love, you know, they got the painting of the disciples at the Last Supper. I'd love to see a painting of this scene. (laughs) Maybe I'll paint one. But he just lays it out there. And why? Because they're, they're dull and they're not getting it. So he tells them plain. And he's like, he's dead and I'm glad he's dead for your sakes. Why? Because it's going to produce belief in you. I want to say something here. God is much more concerned with building our faith than he is about making us feel comfortable all the time. God is much more concerned with building our faith. Why? What was he trying to do here with these guys? These were his disciples. These guys were going to be pillars in the church. Could you imagine if they never could face adversity, if they never had to go through hardship, if everything they prayed for they got instantly? What kind of leaders were they going to be in the early church? You say, well, that's for them, but, you know, everything should be easy for us. We're on the good ship lollipop. We don't want to suffer. No! God's trying to build pillars out of us, soldiers out of us, warriors out of us, because the world needs that. He's trying to build workers out of us that are loyal and dedicated. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Well, pastor, we'll just sit back and watch you work. We got a lot of ideas of all the things that you should be doing. Boy, am I tired of that. I got teams of people figuring out what I should do. Help! Thank you. My wife helped me. These guys weren't getting it, but Jesus made sure they did. They wouldn't respond to the gentle nudgings in a still small voice, so they respond to the bit and the bridle to a certain degree. God doesn't want to make us comfortable. He wants to make us mature. God wants to build our faith. Yet, we hate discomfort. We hate disappointment. Yet those are the two things that get our attention, make us desperate for God, stretch our faith, and shape our destinies more than anything else I know. How we handle disappointment and discomfort 
is going to set the trajectory of our lives. The year was 1920. The scene was the examination board for selecting missionaries. Standing before the selection board was a young Oswald Smith. The dream of this young man had to be a missionary. He wanted to be a missionary since he was a little boy. It dominated his heart. Over and over again, he prayed, Lord, I want to do missions for you. I want to serve you on the mission field. Open the door for service for me. At last, Oswald thought his prayers were answered. He stood before the examination board, and when it was all over, the board rejected Oswald because they said he didn't meet their qualifications. He was shattered. His life had come to a screeching halt. Now he's faced with disappointment and a detour. What could he do? Smith prayed, and God planted a new idea in his heart. He said, if I cannot go on the mission field, I will build a church that sends out missionaries, and that's exactly what he did. Oswald Smith pastored the People's Church in Toronto, Canada, and sent out more missions, missionaries to the field than any other church in that era. Oswald refused to allow his disappointment to derail his destiny. Instead, he allowed God to transform his detour into a powerful opportunity for ministry. When you and I are disappointed, we can either harden our hearts towards God and get angry, or we can run to God and say, God, what now? You see, because what's plan B to us was plan A to him. Oswald did more for missions and more for the gospel and more for saving souls by raising up missionaries and sending them out than he ever could have done going out himself. Are you disappointed? Are you uncomfortable? God's trying to build faith in you today. Did things not go your way? Do you think God didn't hear you? Run to him. He has a plan for your life. One last parting shot comes to Jesus in the area of resistance by way of Thomas. You know, and, and Thomas is a, you know, he's kind of a, a display of how, you know, people can be, especially these days, kind of just saying what's ever on their mind. In verse 16, it says, Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to him and his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Now, if you think about that, you have to try and discern, what is this guy talking about? You know, he, it says he said it to his fellow disciples, but you know he said it loud enough so Jesus could hear it. Let us go so that we may die with him, Jesus. Now, what's the deal here with this guy? Is he being, is he being critical? Is, is this guy really being sarcastic with Jesus? Is he scared? Is that fear talking? You know, people say all kinds of goofy things when they're afraid. Is he insecure? Does he think, you know, oh, we're going to die, and, you know, I'm not ready, and I guess, but uh, we're going to be obedient. You know, what's the motivation here? Is it he's annoyed? that things he's not allowed to lead, that he's not allowed to make the decision, that he has to follow instead of lead. You know, the truth is we can't know what was the motive of Thomas's heart. It could have been sarcasm. He could have been afraid. He could have been annoyed. It could have been all of those things. But what we can do is gauge Jesus's response here and learn from it. Sometimes the very best way to handle critical, sarcastic people with big mouths and bad attitudes is to ignore them. Please. 
hear this. Sometimes saying nothing is the right thing to say. Oh, but you don't know. They were way out of line. And you know what? I'm going to give them a piece of my mind, even though I don't have much left over. I'm willing to risk that. So I'm going to set them straight and let them know. Listen, Jesus' response to this, let's go so we can all die with him, is to say nothing. Was it critical? Was it sarcastic? Was it, you know, was it a bad attitude? It doesn't matter. Jesus didn't respond to it. Now, the temptation is to explode on rude people. The temptation is to, you know, uh, attack them and, 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 and downdress them and just make them feel foolish. You know, why? Because of the ignorance there. Listen to me. What Thomas said was a completely ignorant comment. You ever have people say ignorant stuff to you? Out of line? I mean, rude? You say, well, Pastor, how could you say that it was ignorant? Thomas had no idea what was going to happen. No idea that Jesus was going to heal. You know, I could see Jesus standing in front of Lazarus's tomb there, and Thomas is behind him, and he's like, Lazarus, come forth. And here comes Lazarus, and his grave's closed. And Jesus is just glaring at Thomas. And still, some of you don't even crack a smile. Thomas didn't know what was going to happen. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He didn't let that comment bother him. He just let it go. Why? Because he chose not to. He could have destroyed Thomas. Thomas, who do you think you are? He could have started reading Thomas's mail. You did this, and you did that, and you thought this, and when you were a kid, when you were five years, and you stole the cookie, and I know it all. He didn't say anything. You see, what does he do by doing that? You say, well, it's so much more fun to just, you know, let him have it. And, uh, no, because you destroy the potential for when the situation rectifies itself for you to have a relationship with that person. There's been many people over the course of almost three de- decades of ministry in my life that opposed me, that were disrespectful, that were rude, and, and many times the Holy Spirit restrained me, and, uh, you know, and I said nothing. And some of those people who were my worst detractors became my most loyal supporters. You say, how did that happen? Because I let the Lord straighten them out. The Lord is going to straighten out Thomas and his attitude here because he's going to see how the miracle unfolds. Then he's still going to have a relationship with Jesus. So let's learn from this. Some, Some of us with our mouths destroy things that God's trying to build for us that'll be a blessing to us but we didn't have enough self-control to hold our peace and let the Lord fight our battles. So the greatest way, just deal with a situation where someone's out of line, they're sarcastic, they're rude, they make ignorant comments, is not to respond at all. And you know what? 99% of the time, I think if we seek the Lord, that's the right response. Once in a while, he'll let us say something back. Don't get too excited. It's going to be out of love. Well, here's Jesus, and he's going back to Judea. Why? Because he, he's, he's on a collision course with destiny. He's about to see the kingdom of God do a miracle that's going to produce belief and faith and salvation in a lot of people. He's facing resistance from his own disciples, yet he deals with it, and he doesn't allow it to be a distraction to him. Uh, he, he's got these people here who are now disappointed with him. When he gets there, he's going to have some issues with Mary and Martha, and we're going to look at them. But understand something. Jesus moves on heaven's time clock. He's always on time. He's never late. He hears our prayers. He loves us. He's for us. 
and he's on his way to do a miracle if we'll just believe. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this miracle, for this account, and for all the moving pieces here. We thank you for just the honesty of how the Word of God chronicles these things so we can relate to them, and they can challenge us, and they can help us to have faith and to believe, even when our emotions are raw and we're disappointed and we're hurt. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that are going through crises and they've cried out to you and the answer didn't come when they needed it to come or when they thought it should come or how it should come. And right now, maybe they're a little disappointed. Maybe they feel like you don't care. But Lord, I pray that you would rally all of our faith to trust that you are a good God, that you hear our prayers, that you meet our needs, that you're for us, that you have a plan to bless us and prosper us, to give us hope in the future. Stir up faith in us. Rather than make us comfortable, make us pillars in your church and useful in these last days. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Give him praise this morning.